Support for the Lincoln Project podcast comes from Odoo. If you feel like you're wasting time and money with your current business software, or just want to know what you could be missing, then you need to join the millions of other users who've switched to Odoo. Odoo is the affordable, all-in-one management software with a library of fully integrated business applications that help you get more done in less time for a fraction of the price. To learn more, visit odoo.com Lincoln. That's O-D-O-O dot com slash Lincoln. Odoo, modern management made simple. Welcome back to The Lincoln Project. I'm your host, Reed Galen. Today, I'm joined by senior advisor to The Lincoln Project and author of It Was All a Lie, Stuart Stevens. Stuart, welcome back to the show. Great to be here. Thanks for asking. And also joining me today is the executive director of The Lincoln Project, Fred Wellman. Fred, good to have you back. I always look forward to it. Great to be back. So today, we're going to be talking about the recent wave of, quote, anti-riot legislation and the Texas legislature's attempt to get payback on some corporations who are taking political stands they don't like. But first, I want to talk about the long simmering fight between Senator Mitch McConnell, minority leader of the United States Senate, and former President Donald Trump. And let me just say as an aside, if you'll indulge me, I see on Twitter where I probably spend too much time and I see some in writing about this idea that the people are calling him the former guy, as if if you mention the name Donald Trump like Voldemort, he will suddenly appear in your house or like Candyman from the old horror movies. Like, we should not forget his name. We should not not say his name. He is a bad guy who did horrible things to the country and has not gone away. His name is Donald Trump, and we should not forget that. Anyway, so on Thursday, the Lincoln Project released a new ad called Truthless that really highlights the dividing line here between what is, I guess, what we would have called the establishment piece of the party and the MAGA slash Trump wing of the party, all of it really rooted in who will control the flow of money to Republican candidates and consultants ahead of the 2022 election campaign. So why don't we listen to that? And then I want to have a conversation about what all this means and why we did the ad. Donald. Mitch McConnell is a tough, smart son of a bitch. He knows it, too. McConnell's right-hand man, Josh Holmes plans to cancel you. He acts like you're a nobody and laughs about how Mitch ignores you. And he's going to build a new party with Trump voters. But without you, Josh's business received nearly $13 million from a super PAC that supported your re-election, raising money off your name. My friend, President Donald Trump. Now everyone's saying you're old, impotent, an embarrassment. And they'll come to Mar-a-Lago and praise you, tricking you with cheap gifts like a dollar store silver bowl. But in Washington, Mitch runs the party. You made the MAGA movement, Donald. They're taking it all away from you while using your name to make money. It's Trump or McConnell. Your audience, your movement is watching. So Stuart, I want to start with you. So even going back to as long as you and I can remember, there's always been a more activist wing of the Republican Party and the quote-unquote establishment wing, which you and I spent the vast majority, if not all of our time. And so that script has been flipped with the advent of Donald Trump, and now the activists, as we would have once called them, have become the MAGA movement, and they're now in charge of the party, both at the political level, you know, locally, in states. And, you know, Trump has the ability to make these people, with the exception of McConnell, come down and sort of bend the knee. 
But what's the bigger fight going on here? Because he's lost the White House last year. McConnell lost the Senate. But now we're not that far away from the 22 midterms. So this fight isn't about ideology or some broader governing purpose. Tell us what you see as the fight between McConnell and Trump as we go forward. I think it's a fight between two dark forces. McConnell represents the political industrial establishment of which, you know, I have to confess I was a part of for many years. Josh Holmes is integral to that. They viewed Donald Trump as a sort of necessary evil, and they were convinced that history would record Donald Trump as Mitch McConnell's fool. I think odds are it's going to go the other way. Donald Trump represents power for the sake of power and an autocracy movement. These two made this unholy alliance that resulted in the Republican Party lost the House, they lost the Senate, they lost the White House. And these two forces saw themselves in a classic kind of military situation as allies toward a common purpose. But now that Trump is out of office, they're fighting over who is really going to control the levers of the money machine that is the Republican Party. And both of them aren't going to win. Either McConnell slash Josh Holmes is going to win or the Trump, Jason Miller world, Corey Lewandowski world is going to win. And so, I mean, you know, Stu, just thinking about that for a minute, you know, the inside world of money and politics. And, you know, there's the Citizens United thing and there's, you know, most voters agree there's too much money. Money controls politics. And that's really probably very true when it comes to these sort of motivations. I remember now more than 20 years ago being in Portland, Maine at the end of the 2000 presidential campaign and a Secret Service agent asking me how all this stuff worked. And I was sort of walking him through the different pipes through which money filtered down all the way to an event in a little gym at a community college. And he said, you know, if you guys were in another line of work, I'd be arresting you for money laundering. And he was absolutely right. But, you know, I think what we see here is that, you know, there's the corporate dollars that we've talked a lot about. It seems about 80% of the donations that would otherwise have gone to people who voted against certification dried up. My guess is a quarter for now will be 40%. By the end of the year, you know, these companies will probably be right back to where they were. But also there's the power dynamic, right? And ultimately these two things are tied together. So we mentioned a guy named Josh Holmes. Holmes is McConnell's right-hand guy, has been for a long time, campaign manager, chief of staff, and now sort of major domo. And this is one of those things where you start to see the friction, not only inside Trump world, which is well-known, but also within the Washington world, which is a guy like Rick Scott, senator from Florida, is chairman of the National Republican Senatorial Committee. But at the end of the day, Josh Holmes calls the shots on what the NRSC does. He calls the shots on what races they get involved in. He calls the shots on who gets money and where it goes, who gets taken care of and who doesn't. But now they've got this third component they have to contend with, which is Trump, who is going to go out and probably promote a bunch of primary candidates that are sort of antithetical to not only establishment Republicanism, but just getting elected. And so how does that work inside this sort of crucible that is the beltway when all these people are jockeying positions? It's unsustainable. These two sides are different culturally and they have different goals. I don't really think it was Mitch McConnell's goal to end the American experiment. I think it is Donald Trump's goal. I think Donald Trump and his side of the party, which is 75, 80%, maybe more of the party, has decided that they're for democracy when they win, and they're not for democracy when they lose, which means that they're not for democracy, they're for autocracy. 
And I think that what has happened here is what history has seen many times, 1930s Germany being a classic example, the powers that be saw this rising force in non-college educated white voters. They know that they have nothing in common with them. Someone like Josh Hawley, Ted Cruz, these you know Ivy League creatures have nothing in common with non-college educated white voters. So they looked at Trump as someone who could speak to them, bring them into the party with the idea that they would control them. It's exactly what happened in Germany. And it never works. So you look at January 6th, there's now this great effort to rewrite what happened on January 6th. And I think it's very difficult to look at this with any level-headedness and not concede that what happened on January 6th is the beginning of something, not the culmination of something. And that really is the end of the world as Mitch McConnell and Josh Holmes have lived in for their careers. So, Fred, I want to talk to you because you've been at the highest levels of the military, the military, which is also, you know, when left to its own devices, it tends to try and protect its own in high pressure situations or situations that could reflect badly, not only upon potentially senior officers, but upon the service itself. And so that seems to be sort of part of the DC, you know, maybe it's always been this way, right? That there's the insiders and the outsiders, but talk a little bit about that dynamic of, we know that the Trump world and the McConnell world are fighting over money. We know that there is probably a heck of a lot more to this story about which money went where, how, and when, but getting the press to cover the dynamics of this is very difficult because there's so much access at play for them. Well, I agree. And then there's also so much inside baseball, right? I mean, it, it, we joke a lot of times between the three of us and the four of us here that you guys know what you're doing and I'm I'm new to politics relatively, <laughs> but it's a lot of inside baseball. How do I explain a 527 or how money's passed through or, or where they're making their money or how Holmes has organized his money so he's making money? In a lot of ways, it does go back to greed, doesn't it? I mean, both these organizations are trying to find out who can flow as much money through their you know, their own bank accounts to see who gets on. But it it is that I think the other piece of that, and you talk about a lot, is everybody wants to kind of go back to normal. I mean, I think we circle all the way back to what you said at the very beginning, calling him the former guy. Like, I can't tell you how often we get comments on our social media and our interaction is, oh, well, why do you keep mentioning him? It's like, well, he's the head of the party. I mean, <laughs> it, it, he, he is the nominal nominee as it is for 2024. He's already hinting that he will do that. So we can't just act like he's going away. So many people want to go back to what is normal? And that circles back to the media. The media wants to go back to the traditional going to the White House. There's both sides. And, oh, you know, Jen Psaki was semi-rude to somebody. We got to raise <laughs> And they forget four years of basically not even having press conferences because they gave up even trying to talk to the American people. And I think we are fighting a wave, too, in addition to these forces going at it between the two of them. So much of our nation and, like you said, D.C. and the institutions that we rely on to inform us and balance all this are really seeking this belief that we can go back to normal, that January 6th and the age of Trump will simply just go away and there's going to be sunlight and sunshine now. And we know as we work on this effort that that's not true, that January 6th, as Stuart so eloquently put it, was a beginning and certainly not an end. And when you see what we're going to talk about later, these anti-riot bills or you know corporate punishment bills and the ways to stifle free speech by taking away student loans. No, the Republican Party learned valuable lessons these last couple of years. They can get away with things. And our institutions and their efforts to go back to a status quo are going to miss those efforts. And we're going to wake up one day and find ourselves in a very bad place, I think. So, Stuart, 
I want to shift down to our next topic, which is members of the Texas legislature attempting to take retribution against corporations who are opposing their political acts. Continuing his great reporting, Judd Legum at Popular Information reported that members of the Texas legislature are seeking to punish companies like Dell Computers and American Airlines that are speaking out on voter suppression legislation. In fact, one member down there has proposed an amendment to the budget requiring corporations to, quote, certify that the business has not publicly opposed any legislation filed in this or another state in 2020 or 2021 related to election integrity as a condition of receiving grants. So what this guy is saying is, if you believe in democracy and you said that the 2020 election was free and fair, don't come to the state of Texas for any money. Yeah, that's a losing proposition. And there's a tremendous irony at work here in that the base of the Republican Party, going back since World War II, what was the Eisenhower base? It was this pro-business, pro-free enterprise, chamber of commerce base. Well, what's happened is business has changed like the rest of our culture because business is a function of our culture. And you see these sort of culture wars where, you know, Donald Trump goes out and attacks Nike. Nike's doing great. Donald Trump's out of office. And the business community has a feel for where its customers are, where its employees are, where the culture is. And that's what's moving them. I mean, I'd like to say that it's some higher moral purpose. And there's some of that. I mean, I think that it should not be discounted that people inside these corporations are trying to do the right thing, a lot of them. But at the same time, they understand that it's good for business, not bad for business. And Republicans have just completely lost this connection. I don't know where it ends, but it's another example of Republicans being for the past, not for the future. And so, Fred, you know, the one thing, there's been a little bit of noise down in Texas the last week or so that Matthew McConaughey, famous, well-regarded, Oscar-winning actor, is considering a run for governor. There was a poll in the Dallas Morning News last weekend that showed McConaughey up double digits over the sitting governor, Greg Abbott. There's a whole bunch of reasons why that is. But the truth is, is that Abbott has not been a particularly good governor, certainly not in the last, say, couple of months, maybe 10 weeks, where the power has literally gone out on millions of Texans on numerous occasions. And so what is it for the average Texan or the individual voter anywhere, at what point do you think that ideology is finally overtaken by the idea of like, I don't really want my electricity and my water going out every three weeks. Can I just find somebody who can do the damn job? Well, that's the thing, isn't it? I mean, after this massive power loss, the deaths of literally hundreds of Texans because of that, a legislature that only meets every two years, what's their priority? punishing corporations for daring to question their election laws or punishing corporations for the speaking out about LGBT rights or, you know, whatever, maybe they're so obsessed with the pursuit of culture war items. They've not governed. It's a theme I go back to a lot. At some point, the Republican Party at the state level and national level has decided not to govern that they're going to do culture war stuff, because, as you said, it goes to a certain of their segment. But when you've got a party that in the latest poll only claims 25% of the population as being members, there's a tipping point where people do say, it's like, my power was out. You know, my senator, Ted Cruz, hopped a plane to Mexico. How are we going to keep electing people who are not interested in governing, are more interested in getting their clips on Sean Hannity and Fox News, you know, getting some time with Tucker Carlson to complain about the cancel culture? And when the fact is my father or my grandfather died because his 
you know, oxygen got turned off at his house and the water froze in the bathtub. I mean, I, I had friends in Texas sending me pictures of frozen water in their bathtubs because of that ice storm. So I think we reach a tipping point very quickly. The question is, how do we break those apart? And I guess that's where we come in, I suppose, the Lincoln Project, right? How do we make sure people understand that you have a party in power or a governing institution that is not interested in governing for your best interest, is much more interested in scoring points, if you will, and owning the libs. I mean, I think, I don't know if you guys saw Chuck Grassley's comms guy put a tweet out the other day because Grassley said something like, you know, some rambling thing like he always does. And the guy goes, it's so good to work for a guy who wakes up in the morning, owns the libs, eats lunch and owns the libs, then goes back. It's like, okay, you know, the senior senator of the United States Senate I really don't want him owning libs. I want him governing and keeping our nation moving forward. And I'm an eternal optimist. I hope I believe that at some point people realize that those they've elected are not interested in their best interest and they depart from them. I mean, again, we always talk about the pocketbook, right? We talk about money, 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 money. At what point do the American people realize their money is going down a hole for government that's not serving their best interest, led by people who are more interested in clicks and catchy videos? So, Stuart... Can a political party that only claims 25% of the population as self-identified members legitimately govern for very long? Well, you know, first I just got to say something about Chuck Grassley because I work for Senator Grassley and I love the guy. It's fascinating history. You know, people forget or don't know, but he really got to start in politics as a union leader. He was one of these farmers who couldn't make a living farming and he was working in a plant and he helped organize a union in that plant. And that's who Chuck Grassley was. He wasn't one of these ideological warriors. He was very much of Iowa. And to see this transition to this is depressing and it's sad. And I just miss the guy that I used to work for. But I think any political party has to have a higher purpose. I mean, that is the difference between a political party and, say, you know, a bowling club or any other sort of organization. And for the life of me, I don't think that anyone can articulate what it means to be a American conservative today in any way that's credible. What does it mean? You're against the deficit? Really? I mean, the deficit just keeps going up. We used to be against totalitarian governments. Now we're the pro-Putin party. We used to believe in personal responsibility. Now we're responsibility is for suckers. All of these things that we thought the party believed in, at least I thought the party, a lot of us did. I was actually sucker enough to believe it. Now it exists to beat Democrats. That's an organizing principle, but it's not really anything you can govern with. And if you go back to the so-called autopsy in 2013 after Romney campaign, which I worked for, we lost. The party went through this process. I think Ranch Priebus deserves credit for commissioning that. And the conclusions that it reached was that the party had to change, do these things, appeal more to non-white voters, appeal more to women, particularly women who worked outside the home, single women. And it was presented not just as a political necessity, but as a moral mandate, that if you were going to earn the right to govern this big, changing, loud, cacophonous, contradictory country, you needed to represent that. And then Donald Trump came along and it was like sort of this audible sigh of relief, like, thank God, we can forget that we need to pretend that we care about this stuff. We can just win with Trump. And I think it's very telling. And, and that's where the party is. Well, and so, you know, just to move on to our next topic, I want to talk about this spread of anti-riot legislation that's going on. And we touched on this in our last episode with Matthew Dad, but I want to come back to it today because I think there's a lot to discuss. Ever since the protests of last summer surrounding the death of George Floyd, there's been a wave of GOP state legislation brewing. 
As a refresher, according to Reed Epstein in the New York Times this week, Republicans in 34 states have introduced legislation to crack down on protesters. They'd bar people from student loans and student aid, boost penalties for unlawful assembly, and just get this, immunize drivers who strike protesters in the street. Earlier this week in Florida, Governor Ron DeSantis, who's now being called maybe the next Donald Trump or the presumed frontrunner of the Republican Party when Trump goes away, signed into law what he's calling the strongest anti-riot law in the nation. And to make sure everyone knew what he was up to, Ron DeSantis had a big press conference where he signed this anti-riot legislation and had numerous law enforcement officers in attendance, including Polk County Sheriff Grady Judd. Here's what Sheriff Judd had to say about the anti-riot law. Welcome to Florida. But don't register to vote and vote the stupid way you did up north. You'll get what they got. <laughs> There's a reason that this place is fun. There's a reason why we have a 49-year low crime rate. And the same people that don't think we should have an anti-rioting bill or a rioting bill are the same ones that think we ought to let more people out of prison. And where they're doing that, as the governor and our speakers have alluded to, crime goes up. Let me say this, and I think we could probably do a whole show on this. The most underappreciated political role in this country is that of the county sheriff. They are elected directly by their constituents. They are the chief law enforcement officer of that county, and they are answerable to almost no one almost no one. And in, as you've seen in Florida now, and this is not unusual, these sheriffs are becoming hyper-politicized. And I think, you know, Fred, what concerns me is that there is the language of these bills, and then there's the intent of these bills. And so when you have a guy like Sheriff Grady Judd, and could you have a more Southern Florida name <laughs> like Grady Judd? He's born to be a sheriff. Uh, he's born to be a sheriff. Um, saying these things, if you are in Polk County, and there's a demonstration and we see like a 1968 style, you know, the cops rush down the hill and start beating people up and arresting people. Who's to say what the person who showed up peacefully and is now in jail is going to be charged for? And so I think this is, you know, aside from the myriad issues with First Amendment rights to assembly and everything else, it seems to me that it's almost giving in some ways law enforcement license to just say, you were in the wrong place at the wrong time, three or four felonies for you. And that's exactly it. And and we see what's happening with our police now. Obviously, we, we know what just happened with the, the Chauvin trial and, and the results of, of his actions in Minneapolis that day. We know that we have a challenge in our policing of America. And we know that when police go into these situations, they should be nervous, they should be anxious. Things go wrong, right? So now you're saying, hey, if you want to drive your truck into this crowd and kill people, that's okay. I mean, the thing that shocks me is, you know, I live in Richmond, Virginia, and my son-in-law is a National Guardsman in Virginia, and he was actually at the Charlottesville Unite the Right rally. He was tasked the glorious job of guarding the statue, and he was just a block away from where Heather Heyer was killed by the car driving into the crowd. Can you see a situation where, believe it or not, that might have been legal? I mean, you know, if those counter protesters were throwing punches at the Unite the Right folks, if there was a riot going on as declared a riot by some police officer at some point, some commander, and that guy drives his car into a crowd and Heather was killed, you could almost see a situation where they would argue, much like the stand the ground laws, that he was justified in that death. That's a horrifying thought. 
And that's what happens with these, you know, we used to call them the military second and third order effects. You give an order and it seems cut and dried, but then you just go to the second and third order effects end up being, I don't know, Abu Ghraib. And by that same token, what are you putting on the police now? So will a good-hearted police officer or a good-hearted police commander not want to declare a riot when he should because he's afraid it'll give carte blanche to those who want to take away people's rights further? I mean, it just it opens up such a can of worms that these just awful politicians sitting in the Capitol looking to score points and show they're you know, against the woke left are going to put our police officers and people who simply want to petition their government with their constitutional rights. You're placing people in dangerous situations who face each other doing what they think are the right thing. I mean, it's horrifying to think we're passing laws that could very well lead to people's actual deaths, not just their rights being removed. That's horrifying enough in the United States, but we're actually passing laws that in the passions of our moments may face the moment where people are going to die because the government legislature decided they're going to show those lefties who the boss was. I was shocked when I saw these laws. And isn't it amazing how we keep seeing these rash of laws that flow out to multiple states that look almost exactly the same? It's just remarkable how that works, right? That all these little Republican state legislators all get the exact same idea at the exact same time, from the anti-riot to the voting rights rollbacks. It's just insidious what's going on at the party level, at the local level. And if nothing else, it teaches you one thing, right? All elections matter. So, Stuart, just to extend on the last thing that Fred said there. I'm sure that there are a lot of smart people working at the state level in governor's offices, lieutenant governor's offices, speaker and Senate president's offices. But to Fred's point, this does seem to be pretty well coordinated across states, um, both, as he noted, with the voting legislation, but also with the anti-riot legislation. Is it the Republican state legislative conference? I mean, who, who is the one who sort of sits in a building and says, you know what we should do next? Or is it just a matter of, one person sees it happen, and then they all say, you know what, I can file any bill I want to. Are they really this smart and devious, or are they all just willing to jump in the boat together? Well, I think it's a combination of both. I mean, look at what happened to the Republican Attorney General's Association, a group that I had worked for, was proud of, thought it was a great organization. And look at what's turned out to be their role helping organize the attempt to overthrow the government of the United States on January 6th. And these are the chief law enforcement officers of states, by the way. <laughs> yeah. So like all these things, you have to sort of step back and try to put it in the larger context. And when you read books like Ann Applebaum's Twilight of Democracy or uh, the incredible book, How Democracies Die by the two Harvard professors, the point that they make over and over again is that in our modern world, democracies tend to die not because of violent coups, but because of legal steps that are made. So you change laws such that eventually, at a certain point, you can't look at this and call it a democracy. And that's what's happening here. And we shouldn't be shy about calling it out. The advantage that those who want us to be an autocracy have is that it sounds alarmist when we actually accuse them of this. But we're in moments sort of like they say about pandemics, that whatever you say at the beginning seems alarmist and at the end seems inadequate. You know, the greatest danger we have is not realizing the greatest danger. And those of us who are normal tend to look at people who aren't normal and put Donald Trump and his crowd in that category and assume that they will revert to normalcy. And they play off of that. It's a great advantage for them. And I think that's one of the key roles that the Lincoln Project has here is to place things in context to remind people what's at stake in this moment. So when we put our, our ad about McConnell and Trump, there's a 
conservative, I guess I'll use the air quotes because I don't know what it means to be conservative anymore, New York Times opinion writer who said that the Lincoln Project's only conceit for existence was, we're Republicans who don't like Trump, we beat Trump, and now we're trying to convince Trump to run for president in 2024 again. That was the reason why we're going out of our way to really strike at these joints in what is an unholy coalition. I went back and I read some of that gentleman's you know, headlines. One was from August of last year that said, win or lose, Donald Trump is the head of the Republican Party. And the second one, as late as October, there will be no Trump coup. And so, Stu, to your point, like I'm sort of sick of being right all the time to be immodest for a moment. And I think that's the other part, too, is that you know, at some point, I had Matthew Dowd on the last episode, longtime friend of many of us, and he said, you know, a lot of us, like us, we wake up every day and we say, what are we going to do about this? But ultimately, it's going to have to be the people. It's going to have to be the tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands of people listening to this podcast, millions of people who are otherwise decent human beings and patriotic Americans who say, we're just not going to stand for it anymore. But it can take an awful lot of heat and light and ultimately pressure to move those people into a particular direction. And we can only hope that it happens in time because my opinion is whether or not it was with January 6th, which reintroduced violence into the political lexicon of this country, whether or not it's the anti-voting legislation and now this anti-rioting legislation, which let's be clear is really anti-demonstration legislation, is that by the time that enough of us stand up and start to get to work, it very well could be that the power of the state has said, nope, 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 can't do that anymore. And I think that's really, I think, your most salient point is that democracies don't die in a bloody takeover. They die by degrees. And before you know it, the frog is boiled. And I think that's the thing that we're most worried about. I'm most worried about. I think you all are as well. And we are collectively is that this stuff is happening. It's just rolling along. And because the nature of the establishment politically is to come back to the mean as quickly as it can, as Fred said, and Stuart, as you talked about coming back to normalcy that everybody just wants to assume that we'll be okay because we always have been. And I think that's an assumption we can't take for granted anymore. No, I think the outcome of this battle is completely unknown, as much as I'd like to believe that those who are for democracy are going to win. I mean, look, when I got connected to the Republican Party, we, we looked at Russia, we looked at the Soviet Union as this evil empire that we were an alternative to. Now, the Republican Party looks at what's happened in Putin's Russia as a model. I mean, what they're trying to do is to be able to round up protesters against the government in Miami or Fort Lauderdale the way Putin is doing it in Moscow and across the country. That's what they want. They admire that. And I think it's extraordinarily dangerous. The only thing you can do is fight. And what's remarkable about the Lincoln Project is it began as an op-ed and became a movement. And that's only because people saw it as a force that was not being addressed by the Democratic Party or the Republican Party. It is about people trying to find a way to express their values that are outside of the normal political system and yet must affect the normal political system. And that's how the Lincoln Project has more Twitter followers than the DNC or the RNC, which is extraordinary. And this is going to be a long fight. Is anybody going to win a competitive Republican primary who will assert positively that Joe Biden is a legally elected president. It's hard to imagine. And we're just in uncharted waters here. We have no idea where this leads when millions and millions of people believe that they live in a country called America that's not a democracy. 
So Fred, as we start to bring it home, and I asked Matthew this on our last episode, what do you see on the horizon that most concerns you and what gives you hope? Without question, you know, it's funny, you said something, uncharted waters, Stuart, and it seems like so many of my fellow Americans are happy to be sitting on the boat because waters are calm at least, right? Like you said, it's like, we're off the charts. We have no idea where we're going. We're where we've never been as a nation. And a lot of people just want to accept that it's all okay because right now the water's calm and there's some fish landing and everything's fine. And so I'm very worried about the complacency that goes in to these actions across the country that are rolling back our democracy. Unfortunately, our Democratic colleagues have never built the bench. I'm a Virginian. There's no deep bench in Virginia that's going to counter that local strength of the Republican Party that has taken over so many legislature. That's sort of the thing that keeps me up at night. You know, when we were kids, guys, right, that remember the, the conservative movement, we started taking over school boards and then we started taking over county seats and <laughs> and now they've got a lot. So they can do a lot that causes our democracy to be in deep danger without even getting into Congress. So I think that's what keeps me up at night. Now, on the optimism side, there are those who are in the fight. We live in an age where people like us have a voice that me, a guy like me, who's really nobody, who's a former army officer and now does this, is is able to reach some very powerful people with my, my voice and affect public opinion. So the ability for those people to hide isn't as much as it used to be. The, the days of the smoky back room, right, or the old cloak room, right, where all the deals got done. The world we live in of a very open nature society of communication doesn't allow them to sneak away. Again, I talked about earlier, Derek Chauvin. Would there have been a trial? I mean, would there have been the largest civil rights protest movement in American history, if not history, by some measures, which, by the way, was 97% peaceful? If that young lady hadn't pulled out her iPhone and done the courageous thing, a teenage girl, to film for nine and a half minutes as a man's life was snuffed out in the street unjustly, there wouldn't have been a trial. There probably wouldn't have been an outpouring. So, so I do believe that the ability for these malevolent forces to sneak away and to damage our democracy permanently while they're doing it, their ability to get away with it is somewhat reduced. And so that gives me hope. Well, Stuart, let me ask you the same question, but I'm only going to ask you the optimism part because you wrote a whole book. It was a lie. <laughs> <laughs> kind of gives so, it away, doesn't he? So talk to me about, you know, it seems like the shades are at the moment drawn on American democracy, but what do you see? Is the sunshine filtering through at all? You know, America has a history of being saved by its immigrants. And I think that most likely that is the most optimistic scenario here. I take just about every Republican member of Congress and take them down to the border and trade them one for one for the next immigrant in line. And I think we'd be better off. Oh, I mean, without question. Of Americans 15 years and under, the majority are non-white. Odds are good they're going to be non-white when they're 18. And that is going to transform America in a way that I think because the Republican Party really has become a bastion of white power in the worst sense of it, white power for the purpose of power rather than some values, I think that that is going to have a very positive influence. And when you look at those under 30 in our country, they don't buy into these cultural wars. It's like same-sex marriage. 2008, every candidate, Republican and Democrat, who ran for president was against it. Now we don't even talk about it. And I expect that's the path that a lot of these issues are going to take, that they seem slow at first, change is, and then it happens all at once. And that, to me, is to focus on an optimistic front. Well, listen, I'm optimistic because I get to work with folks like you all on a daily basis, and I know that there are the millions of folks who have flocked to our banner. You know, Steve said something the other day that I thought was really interesting was that 
you know, Republicans and Democrats, they get elected, they go to the legislature, they go to Congress, they go to the county council, whatever it is, and they have things on offer. They can make deals, they can provide grants, they can do whatever the case might be. The folks who follow the Lincoln Project come here because they have belief. And I think so long as we all maintain that belief, as even in sometimes the dimmest moments, we're still the best option out there and have been for 244 years, you know, that certainly gets me going in the morning. So, Fred, before we let you go, where can we find you online? As always, I hang out on Twitter quite a bit, at F.P. Wellman. All right. And, Stuart, how about you? On Twitter, for better or worse, probably worse, Stuart P. Stevens at Twitter. You can find me at Reed Galen. This coming week, folks, I uh, hope you'll tune in. We should have a number of interesting programs for you. LPTV is on hiatus for a couple of weeks, but we'll have some town halls and some Facebook lives in specific states. So I hope as those start to be scheduled that you'll join us on those as well and hear from more of our folks. But until next time, thank you so much for listening, and we'll see you on the next episode. Thanks again to everyone for listening. Be sure to subscribe to The Lincoln Project on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google, or however you listen. Don't forget to leave a five-star review. To connect with us, follow us on Twitter, at Project Lincoln, and for more information on our movement, to join our mailing list and subscribe to our newsletter, visit lincolnproject.us. Also, be sure to check out our LPTV lineup, including The Breakdown with Tara Setmayer and Rick Wilson, which airs Tuesdays and Thursdays at 9 p.m. Eastern, as well as We're Speaking with Lisa Sinical and Maya May, which airs Wednesdays at 9 p.m. Eastern. All shows you can stream live on The Lincoln Project's YouTube, Facebook, or Twitter feeds. For The Lincoln Project, I'm Reed Galen. See you on the next episode. Thank you.